What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and today we have two stories. The first is a hot take on the readiness of our energy infrastructure for the extreme weather events that are expected to increase in frequency and ferocity because of climate change. And then we discuss the announcement by General Motors that it will sell only zero emission vehicles by 2035. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. A rare winter storm in Texas has left millions without power and running water. The problem, according to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, was due mainly to a combination of skyrocketing energy demand due to the cold and the freezing over of a lot of Texas's power generation, including its natural gas power pipelines that supply much of the state's utilities with its energy. When all this went down, there was a lot of political scapegoating that happened. When the politicians in Texas realized that everything was going sour and they weren't really ready for it. And the governor started to incorrectly blame windmills for the outages. But I don't really want to talk about that inaccuracy today. What I want to talk about today is Texas's energy grid. Because the resiliency of an energy grid is an important factor, especially as the globe warms and extreme weather events become more frequent. And in Texas, there are around six investor-owned utilities that are responsible for electricity production and transmission. And these utilities operate in a unique energy market when compared with the rest of the U.S. That is because, unlike other U.S. states that are connected via a federal energy grid, Texas, living up to its Lone Star State motto, has had an independent grid since 1930s. This means in the short term, that Texas was unable to import electricity from elsewhere when its power plants went down. And in the long term, it means that utilities in Texas operate in a market that has really only focused on local pressures and local concerns, meaning in a state that is usually hot, an isolated energy market might not have a financial structure that provides an incentive to utilities to prepare for the winter. That might be because often utilities pass on the costs of upgrades to the ratepayers, and not many ratepayers in Texas were thinking about the cold until this week. So what this means for Texas energy grid is that it might not be very resilient to the changing climate. And so that's what I want to discuss today, because often on this podcast, we talk about how grids need to be updated to deal with the power surges caused by renewable energy. But today, I want to understand grid resiliency and whether companies are appropriately accounting for it as a risk factor in their operations. So to do that, I called up my colleague Umar Ashbach, who covers the sector for us, and asked him to first tell me and help define grid resiliency so we can kind of go from there and discuss how it's affecting Texas. So grid resiliency is essentially the the dependent variable if i were to speak mathematically and grid resiliency is all encompassing so if you have enough infrastructure investments going into say weatherization or storm hardening which has happened in particularly the northeast and not so much in uh, the southern states then the result of that is improved service reliability and the indicators reflect that so what he's talking about is we look at these indicators like whether there has been an adoption of reliability standards to harden power plants and installed related equipment that will help power plants against the cold. For Texas, they usually have to worry about the heat. But 
What we found is that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the North American Reliability Corporation commissioned this report in 2011 telling Texas that it needed to deal with the possibility of cold spells and what that could do to their energy system and how catastrophic it could be for its citizens and that the energy system should install things like wind barriers and provide better insulation and heating systems at its plant, things like that. But it seems like Texas did not really respond to those recommendations because what we found when we looked at these reliability indicators is that Texas energy is behind other regions when it comes to grid reliability. If you look through the numbers and we're looking at uh, the 2018 service reliability indicators, if you look at investor-owned utilities, what comes out uh, is that Texas, the investor-owned utilities, particularly in Texas, do worse than uh, if you compare them to other utilities in uh, all of the U.S. Some names that do stand out which are particularly lagging are Southwestern Electric Power Company as well as AEP Texas. So these are indicator, uh, indicators as well as symptoms of uh, what may ultimately require larger infrastructural upgrades to improve the resilience of, of the electric, uh, electric utility uh, grid. So with this, with all physical damage that's caused by climate change, what we think is this event might prompt investors and companies to assess the issues that are kind of inherent in their energy system. Mainly, how can their systems become more reliable as the weather becomes more extreme? And that might mean determining the costs of increased winterization and balancing those costs against the need for increased reliability. Or talking with uh, rate makers and, and customers about who will ultimately bear the costs of additional weatherization when that comes out in community meetings and discussions about uh, a community's energy plants, or maybe even figuring out whether the state commissions that run Texas Energy have adequate resources or authority to help prepare Texas and other regions around the world in general for these 100-year weather events we are seeing more and more. That might include better incentives for companies or the threat of government regulation. Regardless, understanding infrastructure resiliency in the coming decades will be an important factor for both investors and companies to consider and something that we're going to watch very closely. In late January of this year, Auto manufacturer GM announced it would be selling only electric vehicles by 2035. This announcement was the culmination of a number of EV-focused moves made by GM in the past couple of years. In 2019, for example, GM partnered with LG Chem to invest in a U.S. battery plant venture in Lordstown, Ohio, worth about $2.3 billion USD. There, the two companies developed what is now called the GM Altium battery that promised new electric models could be developed at the plant with speed. Then in November of 2020, the chief executive of GM, Mary Barra, announced GM would accelerate the rollout of its 30 new electric vehicles in an attempt to gain market dominance in the U.S. and China. Then came this recent 2035 announcement as though it was kind of the climax of their story. To put this announcement into perspective, GM sold about 6.8 million cars worldwide in 2020. Of that, only 25,000 were electric vehicle sales, a la its only EV vehicle available in 2020, the Bolt EV. That 25,000 was about 30% higher than it was in 2019, but still, what is that? It's about 0.003% of its total sales being EV. So how feasible is this plan by GM? 
I called up my two colleagues who would know about these things, Arna Klug and Yu Ishiara, who cover the auto industry for us. And I asked you first what he thought about this announcement and kind of give me his take on this going on. I think it's important to look at it from sort of two different standpoints. You know, first off, you got to recognize that GM themselves have actually caveated that their statement to sell uh, zero emission, all zero emission vehicles by 2035. You know, it's aspirational. Um, there's a lot of things that have to go right for them, including, you know, changes to the regulatory environment, building out infrastructure, and of course, you know, the economy. These are all possible swing factors. You know, but having said that, GM's definitely been ramping up um, their messaging and their investments for their commitment to electric vehicles. And this latest message, I think, is just sort of the next step. But the other thing I think is important to bear in mind is also the political implications that come with this. Um, the environmental aspect, the business aspect is nice, but you do need to be cognizant, at least in terms of the timing of this messaging. Um, it comes right on the heels of President Biden signing his executive orders on climate change. So I do think there's a certain amount of political messaging that's involved in this timing as well. There isn't only the new Biden administration in the U.S. that these auto manufacturers have to deal with, especially GM. There are also fleet emission regulations that are coming to the forefront in the EU this year, and China plans to phase out conventional gas-burning cars by 2035. And GM wants to kind of get to the front of these markets. It's the only large manufacturer of autos that has pledged to sell only EV vehicles by 2035. And kind of note there, I said large auto manufacturers purposely because Tesla, while a dominant player in the EV market currently, isn't really a large auto manufacturer at the moment. And GM is trying to kind of make investments to try to both take over Tesla and become one of the largest EV producers and sellers in the world. To make electric vehicles fast, though, you need to make batteries fast. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, GM has done that with the Altium battery facility in Ohio. And that's an important thing to focus on. Yeah, so one of the big things that GM has been pushing is the development of what they've been calling their Ultium EV platform. And I think they've, um, they're on course for development. They're increasing their vertical integration to develop batteries um, built with partner LG Chem in the United States. And again, I think most, if not all, of their electric vehicle models that they're scheduled to roll out over the next few years will be uh, developed based on this platform. So the technology is definitely there. The willingness is definitely there. And the company definitely has you know, for lack of a better word, bet the farm on an electric future. And when I talked to Arna, he kind of backed up what you was saying there, stressing the fact that not only is the Altium battery facility one that can produce a lot of batteries quickly, which is an issue that Tesla ran into when it was trying to really ramp up its production. So GM is trying to avoid that. But it can also produce a flexible type of battery that can fit a variety of different types of EV vehicles that GM is planning to build. Yeah, the guess important thing about this um, Altium platform is right, and it could be really used to build um, types of models like from trucks to also like pickups and smaller um, cars right so it's like a kind of model modular battery and um, technology so it's quite flexible and gives um, yeah GM some flexibility here to produce different models and also may of course to save some costs and to be quite efficient when it comes to production. The last thing Arna said there about being a green auto sector is really important because it's 
much more complicated to green the auto sector than it is to green the airline sector or um, the power sector, for example, because we as a society view cars as an expression of our individualism. People like to think that they can tell the kind of person someone is by the car they drive. And auto manufacturers kind of play on this. They market trucks as something for the hardy soul and a sports car is for the thrill seeker and the minivan is for someone that has realized that their family is more important than their ego and they're kind of helped along by media there are shows dedicated to how different cars move and sound and feel and look and what the car says about you and and what owning the right car signals in a capitalistic society so a big question for companies like gm is how you get a consumer base to buy the car you want them to buy. I put the question to you. There's two elements to that. There's the element of cost and pricing. Um, Right now, electric vehicles are generally prohibitively expensive for the average consumer, especially in the U.S. Um, And that's why cars like Tesla, for example, tend to trade or sell at a premium price point, um, simply because the battery costs are just too high. On the other hand, you also have to think from GM's perspective about who is their consumer. GM, you know, is famous for selling big pickup trucks, large SUVs, which are easier to make into EVs in terms of getting the price point there. But at the same time, does the average GM customer necessarily want to buy an electric car versus, you know, their big pickup trucks that they're used to buying? Let's say for the sake of this recording that GM is successful in its pursuits and all the millions of cars it sells in 2035 are electric and tailpipe emissions fall dramatically in the coming decades as other car companies follow suit. What does this mean for the survival of our planet? I mean, EVs are being pushed so aggressively in part due to the environmental benefits they bestow. So do they actually work in reducing our globe's carbon emissions and industrial pollution? It's a question I presented to Arna. So it really depends on several factors um, because as we know, pure electric vehicles do not emit direct CO2 emissions, but we have to consider the full, the whole life cycle emissions of a car. So from the production of the components to the end of life and recycling and the production of EV batteries, for example, that is re- relatively carbon intensive. At least it's more carbon intensive than the production of traditional engines. There are other complicating factors in this equation. For example, the sort of electricity that's used to power the auto manufacturing facility. Is it renewable energy or is it carbon intensive fossil fuels? And this one is really important. The sort of electricity that the EV owners use to charge their car's batteries. If your community's utility is run on renewable energy, then great, your EV is extremely beneficial. But if you get your electricity from a coal-fired power plant, for example, then the EV's emission profile is actually not that favorable compared to a conventional car. Let's say you drive in a large electric SUV in a country where energy comes from yeah, mostly from coal, then the carbon footprint could be much higher than a carbon footprint of a conventional car. So the production of a large car with heavy batteries is energy intensive, while a small-sized gasoline-powered car might then have a lower carbon footprint. So in the end, size and energy mix, um, these factors really matter. That is because the battery of an electric vehicle relies on the mining of lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, and other heavy metals that have both environmental and social impacts. So you need renewable energy to offset the environmental issues caused by the procurement of those metals. And 
Like, this isn't really to talk down on electric vehicles. Greenhouse gas emissions from transportation account for about 28% of the total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in 2020, making it the largest contributor. And trucks and cars account for about 82% of that number, according to the U.S. EPA. There are also the coming regulations I noted before that companies have to pay attention to, the strictest of which are in the EU and China. This year, in the EU, for example, the EU fleet emissions regulations will come into force and car companies will be fined up to 95 euros per gram of co2 above the emissions target for each car that they have registered in the eu that is not a small amount when you think about the millions of cars that are on the road whether gm will be able to accomplish its goal will be seen in the coming decade but as you and arna noted they seem to have the tools necessary to at least make a large push into the ev market but even after the auto industry increases its shares of EVs, our economy will still have to ensure that the benefits brought by the EV market will not be negated by an energy infrastructure that is still based solely on fossil fuels. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Umar and you and Arna for joining me to discuss this week's news with the Nishi Twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That always helps. And a big shout out to Bentley for covering as host this week. He's the best. I love listening to him. So don't forget to do that if you missed last week's episode. And subscribe, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much and talk to you soon. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.